Good morning, church. I was, uh, was encouraged by Stan's prayer just to be reminded that this is what we set aside these two hours for every, every Sunday. This is, the, this is the one time of the week that we set aside for us to all gather together to collectively set our affections on the Lord. And you heard the humility in that prayer and that there's, there's nothing we can do this morning to, to conjure up right to worship. Uh, but we, we gather as a humble people, um, expecting to be led by the Spirit to glorify the Lord. So welcome to that gathering this morning. The last time I preached, which was a few months ago, I commented that we had been swimming in the deep end of Romans. And I may have been a little premature, because if that was true, then I think we have been swimming in the Mediterranean recently, or the middle of the Pacific, or the middle of the Atlantic in Romans 8 and 9. I hope it's been encouraging for you and uh, have been able to work through and work out some of those things that we have heard uh, from Paul. Uh, but today we take a break, as you would expect, seeing me up here. And Lord willing, when Lonnie returns from vacation next week, we'll pick back up with Romans 9. I have, I've told you before about the, the difficulty I have found. It just gave away my cover. I've told you before about the difficulty I have found in selecting a text to preach on these, these spot opportunities. You got 66 books, pick one. Right, and I, you know, I've been in, in the Psalms, in the Epistles, in the Gospels, in narrative, both Testaments. Uh, but it, it's challenging just to, just to pick one. So what I have decided to do, Lord willing, is that as I have opportunity to preach, to preach through a book. That's what we do at Four Corners. And it will be much the same thing that we do every other week. It's just that it will be intermittent. It will be time between sermons. Uh, so that book, as you can see there, will be Paul's letter to the Philippians. It's only four chapters long, and uh, it, it lends itself to this format of intermittent attention. I would have loved to have done a, a Deuteronomy or an Isaiah, but I think at that pace that would not have served us well. So four chapters feels good for us, and uh, we've had some exposure to Philippians over the last several years. Uh, a few years ago, um, our men walked through Philippians in a men's Bible study. And then most recently, uh, Lonnie preached through Philippians 2, 5 through 11, in December of 2019, for our Advent study. And then most recently, uh, Will Daney actually preached a sermon on Philippians 4 earlier this year. So that's been our exposure to Philippians. But uh, however many years and however many sermons it takes at this pace, uh, when I uh, come to preach, Lord willing, uh, Philippians will be the well that uh, we go to. Uh, so today, you can go ahead and turn to uh, chapter 1, of course, and we'll be in verses 1 through 6. Philippians 1, 1 through 6. We're not quite ready to read, but go ahead and mark your place. If you, if you pick up a commentary on virtually any New Testament letter, one of the things you will find in the introduction is a discussion on the occasion of the letter. That simply means uh, the reason that the author wrote the letter. 
And in some, in some epistles, it's, it's quite easy to reconstruct the occasion. Galatians, for example, is pretty clear. Paul's writing because there's a big problem with, with, with bad theology. And uh, it, it's, it's important for us to think through the occasion of the letter because it situates us in the, the reason the author's writing, the, the context that the recipients would have been hearing for the first time. And that's where the, the original meaning is in. So as it regards Philippians, and we think about the occasion of the letter, Paul writes in response to a gift. He is in prison, or house arrest more likely, uh, probably in Rome, and his friends in Philippi have sent him a gift of support, and this letter is a response to that gift. Now, it would not be true to classify Philippians, though, as a thank you note. If we write thank you notes, right, after you get married, or you have a party, a shower, dear aunt so-and-so, thank you for the toaster, it makes great toast, you know, I think of you every time I make toast, right, love, Trey, right? That's not what Paul is doing. He, he does thank the Philippians, and he does it in his own unique way, and he actually waits to the end of the letter before he gets close to a thank you. Uh, but this is not a mere thank you note. As he responds to this gift, he takes the opportunity to, to deal and speak to several issues in the church and to encourage his old friends in Philippi. So, in fact, the themes in Philippians run much deeper than if you were to be expecting a mere thank you note. Everything in Philippians is built on the centrality of Christ and the foundation of the gospel. In fact, the words, the two nouns, Christ and gospel, appear with more frequency in Philippians relative to the length than they do any of, other, any of Paul's other letters. And then on those foundations of Christ and gospel, you get several ideas, fellowship, partnership in the gospel, unity among Christians, joy, focus on the advancement of the gospel, future hope in present circumstances, serving others. All of these are themes built on Christ and the gospel in Philippians. So I give you that just to say this is no mere thank you note. I want to read... Uh, a quote from Gordon Fee. He's one of the, written one of the, the best commentaries on Philippians. This is what he writes at the end of his introduction to the book. Our letter invites us into the advance of the gospel, the good news about Christ and the Spirit. It points us to Christ both now and forever. Christ is the gospel. Christ is Savior and Lord. Thus, Christ is our life. Christ is our way of life. Christ is our future. Christ is our joy. To live is Christ. To die is gain. And all to the glory of our God and Father. Amen. That is what we get as we embark into Philippians. It will be an intermittent journey, but I pray that the Lord will speak nonetheless. So, you can stand and let's read the first six verses of Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, 
with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You can have a seat. Let's pray that the Lord would add to the hearing of the word and the preaching of the word our understanding of it. God, thank you for this gift of this letter. It was written to close friends thousands of years ago and still comes to bear on us today because it was penned under the authority and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We pray this morning as we step into this relationship between partners and the gospel, we might hear what you have to say to us. Would you free us from distraction and focus our minds and our pens and our hands and our hearts on your word. Amen. Well, the title of the sermon is Partners in the Gospel. And as Paul writes to his partners, he begins with a a warm greeting. These are our three points. He begins with a warm greeting. He speaks of his joyful gratitude and he offers to the Philippians sure confidence. He begins, as you would expect with any letter, with warm greetings and how most of Paul's letters and most first century correspondence would begin with identifying the author, identifying the recipients, and a salutation or a greeting. So let us run through those. Of course, we hear from Paul. This is our Our good friend, we need no introduction to him. We have been walking with him very closely for the last year and a half in Romans. As I mentioned, he's writing from prison, or or more accurately, house arrest. Uh, There is some debate as to where he is writing from. It is most likely Rome, probably Rome. Just to situate this in the context of the New Testament, if you think about the book of Acts, everything in Acts has already happened as Paul is writing Philippians. So all of his missionary journeys, the, the insane circumstances that take him from being arrested in Jerusalem, this, this crazy boat voyage across the Mediterranean, shipwrecked snakes, and all these crazy things that happen, ends in Rome, and he is there in, under house arrest, and that's how Acts ends. Paul is in Rome awaiting something. He does not know. And in that time is when he writes the book of, it writes this letter to Philippians. His friend and ministry partner Timothy is with him. It was common for Paul to acknowledge when he had companions with him. He does so in over half of his letters. That doesn't indicate that Timothy was writing. Uh, The whole book is written in the first person, I, Paul, and he refers to Timothy in the third person in chapter two. So we don't need to think of Timothy as authoring uh, with Paul, uh, simply that Paul wants to say, look, Uh, Timothy was well-respected in Philippi. He was with Paul in Acts 16 uh, when he first came to, when Paul first came to Philippi. He simply wants to say, look, your your friend, my friend, Timothy, is with me here. He's well in prison. 
normally, after introducing himself, Paul will mention his status as an apostle. And, and many times that's necessary for him to do for the sake of his, his communication, like in, in Galatia, or, or the uh, letter to the Galatians, or to the Corinthians, it was necessary for him to, to claim his apostolic authority to rightly communicate what he needed to say. But here, as he writes to his, his good friends, there's no need for Paul to throw around his apostolic weight. So he foregoes the, the, self, the, the title of apostle and refers to himself as another status, servant of Christ Jesus. This is one that applies to both him and Timothy. He says, I, I am one whose, whose posture before God is, is of service and humility. Of course, by the nature of the title, he is writing to the Christians in Philippi, those whose, whose spiritual location is in Christ Jesus, whose physical location is in Philippi. Acts tells us that Philippi was a leading city in the region of Macedonia. It was founded by the Greeks. By this time, it had become under Roman control, and it had been stocked several years before this with expats from the Roman military. So you can imagine that whatever was happening in Philippi, it was steeped in, in pagan idolatry, in whatever were the prevailing social customs of the time. Philippi was steeped in that. Yet, the gospel had taken root. That's what Stan read for us this morning. Those, I think, uh, 29 verses in Acts 16 was the entry of the gospel into Philippi. So for now, let us just recognize that as Paul writes to these folks, he is writing primarily to Gentile Christians. And as he addresses them, he does something unique. He, he addresses uh, specifically the overseers and the deacons. Now, th this is not normal for Paul to address a particular group in the church. So it leads commentators love to debate about these things. Why does he mention them? Did they need to be called out for some reason? Did they organize the gift that was sent to him? He's getting their attention. What's going on? Frankly, we don't know. We don't know why Paul mentions them specifically. But it is helpful for us. It's helpful for us that he mentions these men because it shows that these roles of church government were actually established quite early in the life of the church. It's almost universally recognized that Paul wrote Philippians, and we even more or less agree down to a few years of the date when he wrote it. So what that tells us is very early on in the church, just a few decades after, after the church began, there's already an understanding of these offices in the church, overseers and deacons. So I actually want to spend a few minutes talking about these offices now, just to be clear, this is not what Paul is doing. In no way, shape, or form is he giving an exposition on what overseers and deacons are. But it is not often that we come across these terms so explicitly in our text. In fact, the last time I can remember without having looked would have been when Lonnie preached through Titus chapter 2, which I believe was 2016, was the last specific reference we had in a Sunday morning on uh, the, the leadership of the church. So I just want to spend a few minutes there, press pause on the flow of the letter, because it's healthy for us to be reminded of these things. So first he greets the overseers. 
It's an uncommon word, but we understand it to mean essentially the same thing as shepherd or pastor or elder. He uses here the word overseer. If you go to Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders, calls them elders, but this is what he says to them. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. So there in that text, we have elder equals overseer equals caring for the church of God. This is the same word that Paul will use in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 2 to describe the office for which he there gives qualifications for overseer. And then there's another important reference to this office in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 2. Peter uses different words. He doesn't use the word overseer. He actually uses the word shepherd and elder, but he gives a similar task. This is what Peter writes, 1 Peter 5, 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So I select those texts to tell you this. Whether the word in the New Testament is the word for overseer or elder or shepherd, those are three distinct words, or pastor, which is the same thing as shepherd, the point is the task is the same. Pay attention to the flock and care for the church. Care for both the corporate direction and vision of the church overall and care for individuals, their faith their sanctification, their souls. So that's what we believe overseers slash elders slash, over, slash, de- uh, slash elders slash pastors are at four corners. Elders are all overseers, pastors, and shepherds. So yes, Lonnie is the one you see up here bringing the word each week. And yes, Lonnie and I are the, the two that are, are paid full-time so that we can devote our attention to the care of the church. But Four Corners has five pastors because it currently has five elders, all of which are tasked with overseeing the flock, caring for God's people. Those are the overseers Paul addresses. And he also addresses the deacons. Now we have less references to deacons in the New Testament than we do elders In fact, the only other specific reference to the the man or the office of deacon is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where he will give qualifications for that role. But while we don't have an abundance of references to the office, the Greek word is is quite common, and it simply means servant. It's one who works in service to another is a deacon. That's why many will understand uh, what we see in Acts chapter 6 with with the apostles calling certain men to serve uh, serve the tables. Many will see that as a a kind of proto-deacon. It doesn't refer to them as deacons, but that's what we understand their role to be. That even then, when the church in Acts 6 was perhaps weeks old at the time, there was a need for men to be specifically called to serve practical needs in the church so that the elders could carry on with the ministry of the word and the care for God's people. So that's how we understand deacons today, to oversee 
practical needs of the church, there is oversight in the role of deacon. They're overseeing practical needs of the church so that the elders might carry on with the ministry of the word and the care for the church. And that's, that's how our deacons function at Four Corners, whether that's benevolence or, or overseeing our music or our finances or this building which the Lord has blessed us with, setting up the baptismal, you name it. These are the things that our deacons are overseeing. And they do a great job of it, by the way. So at its simplest, this is New Testament church government. We look at it 2,000 years on and, and see things at times as, as much more complicated in different denominations. But at Four Corners, this is how we are governed. There's, there's not much more complication past this, overseers and deacons. It may sound like that's a lot of authority to give to a small group of men. And on one hand, that's the point of a plurality. That's why there's more than one. Because when you have these men who are operating according to the qualifications set forth in Scripture, there's natural accountability there. But, but look at the text and notice something. Paul, Paul would have been a kind of authority figure to the Philippians. would have been well-respected. He, he planted the church, and, and after all, he is an apostle. And he refers to himself in the fourth word of the letter as a servant of Christ Jesus. And in so doing, reminds the overseers and deacons that he addresses, you likewise are but a servant. There's no room for entitlement in this role. There is no place of prominence here. There is no special treatment. Stan prayed this morning that the Lord would humble the leadership of our church. Thank you for that prayer because that is needed. That it's part of the role. Particularly if Jesus is our chief shepherd, I speak to us as elders and those who are deacons. If Jesus is the one after whom we model our service, there is, there is no room for entitlement. There's no room for abuse of authority here. These men, Paul says, are not over the church in dignity or importance. They're with the church. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. So these are the offices that Paul greets. These are the things these men would have been doing in Philippi, working in care for and service to the church, only and always with humility. So let's press resume back on our letter. We move into Paul's familiar greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How he begins most of his letters. This was common. First century correspondence began with, with greetings to you. Well, the word grace and the word greetings sound fairly similar in the Greek. So Paul's employing a turn of phrase here to turn greetings into you, into grace to you, and then tacking on and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the one of the most memorable things, I, I, little nuggets that I ran across as I was reading for this, uh, this text was one writer who said, in the hands of Paul, everything turns to gospel. Even the hello. Even the hello turns to gospel in the hand of Paul. Greetings to you becomes grace to you. And that's how our letter begins. Warm greetings of grace and peace from Timothy and Paul to the church in Philippi. So before we move on, I just want to make a quick note about the nature 
that we have these letters at all. You know, the fact that we have these letters in our Bibles should be an encouragement. Because on one level, every New Testament letter was written because there were problems in the church. You know, whether it was internal strife in Philippi or sin in Corinth or an underdeveloped church in Crete where Paul had left Titus, whether it was theological drift or theological abandonment, more, more accurately, in the churches in Galatia, there were problems in these churches that caused the letters to be written in the first place. And we can tend sometimes to think more highly than we ought of these churches. You know, their names were, were, were preserved in the, in the word of God that we have forever. But we should understand these folks were messed up. That's what these letters are telling us. So the encouragement to us then is, as we look around our church, and as we see ways that we fall short, both corporately we fall short as a whole, and as individuals we fall short and we cause problems and strife, our response to those things is not discouragement. It's not despair. It's not, I got to go find a new church because these folks just don't have it together. Our response when we see those things here is that we come from a long line of imperfect churches. There is a rich heritage of messed up churches. We would fit in quite well with the Philippians. Dare I say, we would fit in quite well with the Corinthians. But look how God has preserved his people. That's what these letters tell us. That a gathered body of Christians has always been imperfect and will always be imperfect. We are going to have problems, but that is not cause for despair because look how God has preserved his people. And then, every time we confess our sin, every time we encourage another brother or sister in the church, every time we, we do the hard work of, of healing relational conflict, every time we point each other to Christ, we are engaging in the same kind of church-building work that Paul was engaged in as he sat down to write to the Philippians. Not as an apostle, of course, but Paul's building a messed-up church in Philippi, encouraging them. That's what you do every time you engage in these things with your brothers and sisters here. So just an encouragement on the fact that we have these epistles in the first place. Well, after a warm greeting, Paul explodes into a joyful gratitude. Verses three through five, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So he does burst into thanksgiving here, but what he's going to show us is that he's going to give us both his, his mode and his reason for gratitude. His mode will be in verses 3 and 4. His reason for gratitude will be in verse 5. And as we look at his mode of gratitude, there's five things he shows us. I'll, I'll give them to you quickly, and then we'll walk through them each just so you can be prepared for them. So the five things his mode of gratitude shows us, verses 3 to 4, is that it is others-focused, God-directed, 
prayer expressed, all-encompassing, and joy-filled. It starts by being others expressed. He bursts into thanksgiving, but not quite for what you would expect. You, You might expect him to be thankful for the gift. After all, he's writing in response to that support they've given him. But in typical Paul fashion, he's not so much thankful for the material support as he is thankful for the people who sent it. Paul is a people person. Now you hear that and you might think extrovert. Was Paul an extrovert? I have no idea. Nobody knows. When I say people person, that's not what I mean. What I mean is that Paul's focus falls on other people. His main concern falls on others. That's why he'll say at the end of the letter, when he finally does get around to to thanking them, chapter 4, verse 17, he says, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So, yeah, he's grateful they supported him, but he is mainly grateful that they have participated in something that shows evidence of their having believed the gospel. He is mainly grateful that they are growing and continuing in the faith because that means credit for them. Even in his gratitude, he is trying to encourage them. His gratitude is others-focused. But it's also God-directed. The main phrase in verse 3 to 5 from which everything flows, is I thank my God. See, Paul knows that you can be thankful for a thing itself, but to truly express gratitude, you need to be thankful to the one from whom it came. This is not novel. We all know this. Your husband or wife gives you a gift, so they give you a watch. You're grateful for the watch. You put the watch on, you love the watch, and you you go off to start fiddling with all the knobs and the dials and connect it to your phone and whatnot. You're grateful for the watch. That's not gratitude because you haven't thanked your wife, your husband, right? Gratitude doesn't actually happen until you're grateful for the one from whom the thing came. That's how we express it. And Paul knows the gift, the material gift from the Philippians, the relationship itself he has with the Philippians all come from the Lord. And by directing his gratitude to God, he is, he's, he's honoring the Lord. He is exalting God for being the one from whom this gift and the relationship come. So in order to be truly grateful, Paul is, Paul's gratitude is God-directed. And it's expressed in prayer. Look at verses 3 to 4. Or in verse 4, he says, In every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. This is a consistent pattern for Paul. Over and over and over again, we see him being thankful for people, but then expressing that gratitude to God in prayer. What is gratitude if it's unexpressed? We teach our kids to say thank you, not to feel thank you. Because we're grateful when we express our gratitude. And in, in, in expressing it, particularly expressing gratefulness to God in prayer, it submits us to Him. It humbles us. It reminds us of God's goodness. So Paul expresses his gratitude in prayer to God. So just a reminder, we're, we're looking at Paul's mode of gratitude here. So far, it is others-focused, God-directed, prayer-expressed, and then it's all-encompassing. 
Notice how comprehensive is his prayer. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all. Those are different words in English, and even in the Greek, it's not the same word, but they do have the same root. So when you read it, it's this very obvious but slightly awkward repetition. It's even a little bit awkward in English. And not because Paul's a bad writer, but he's trying to impress upon his friends the, the depth and the consistency and the frequency with which he is engaged in prayer for all of his friends in Philippi. This is a deep relationship that has spanned many miles and many years. <clears throat> and yet they remain at the forefront of Paul's mind. You know, as I look out here, and I see us gathered, not separated by many miles and many years. This is in some ways convicting that we also ought to be engaged with this kind of frequency and consistency in grateful prayer to God for our friends. There's, there's 200 gifts here this morning for you from God. And are we grateful for those things? Do we, do we express that gratitude to the Lord? This, this kind of others-focused uh, gratitude to God is, is Paul's posture. And then lastly, it is joy-filled. He says that I am making my prayer with joy. It's a little confusing. Let me just clear it up. He is not saying you all are making my prayer with joy. The subject of making is I, even though we don't read it there. He's saying when I pray, I pray joyfully. So the NIV reads, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. It's a little more clear there. But when he brings up joy, this is the first time he mentions this theme that will appear over, over a dozen times in Philippians, joy. Paul knows this is not an emotion. We know this. Joy is something that can be commanded. Joy is an attitude or a posture because of this, we say that his mode of gratitude, as we look back at all of this, is joyful prayer focused on others and directed at God. If we don't step back and consider that posture in its context, we might forget Paul is saying all of this while in prison. And he doesn't know how that's going to end. Now, more than likely, he, he gets out of prison this go-round. Of course, he's going to end back up there and eventually die. But more than likely, uh, he, he doesn't, doesn't end here. But he does not know that. This is a great unknown for Paul. So it's pretty striking that considering the circumstances, his mindset as he begins this letter to his friends is gratitude focused on others directed at God in prayer with joy. This is not a new posture for Paul. Remember what happened when he was in jail Stan read in Acts 16 with Silas, about midnight, they were singing and praying when the earthquake happened. This is even not a new posture for the Philippians, because Paul wrote about them when he wrote to the Corinthians, and he said this about them. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Remember, Philippi is the leading city of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. So even for the Philippians, this was not an, an abnormal kind of posture for them. In poverty and affliction, they were overflowing with joy, 
Paul writes there in 2 Corinthians. So how many of us, when we get into these kinds of situations where the end is unknown, that becomes the all-consuming object of life? Every thought, every ounce of energy, every emotion is directed at wondering how this uncomfortable circumstance is going to play out. And then that necessarily means that all of my energy would otherwise be directed towards others, all of my prayer, all of my gratitude, my being a faithful friend, all of that gets put on hold while I consume myself with this situation that I have no control over. Not for Paul. Even in the extreme, not knowing if he will be killed the next day, He maintains this mode of gratitude that is focused on others and directed at God in joyful prayer. That's his mode of gratitude. But under this second point, he also gives us his reason for gratitude. Look at verse 5 with me. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This is the specific reason that Paul has such gratitude for his friends in Philippi. Now, there's a lot to deal with with this little phrase, partnership in the gospel. So first, let's consider um, the specific partnership between Paul and the Philippians, and then that will lead us to consider some of the broader implications of what partnership in the gospel means. Paul is grateful for their partnership, he says, from the first day until now. And he can say that because he was there on the first day. This takes us back to Acts 16. This is what Stan read for us. Now, a wild course of events happened there, right? He he is uh, thinking he's going in one direction, redirected by the Spirit to go towards Macedonia. He ends up in Philippi. It seems as if there's no synagogue there. So he goes to uh, a river and finds some women praying. He preaches the gospel, boom, right away, Lydia is converted and her whole household and they're baptized. Pretty good way to start, right? He's invited to her home and at some point he, he runs across this slave girl and as we heard, she has this spirit that's just downright annoying to Paul. So in frustration, I imagine, he casts out the spirit. Well, there were some folks making money off of this girl. They're not too happy about it. So they get Paul in trouble. He gets thrown into prison. We heard what happens there. About midnight, he and Silas are joyfully singing and praying. Earthquake happens. All the doors fling open. The jailer freaks out. He thinks he's about to get killed because all his prisoners go away, about to fall on his sword. Paul says, no, no, we're all still here. The jailer is dumbfounded. Paul preaches the gospel to him. He's converted in his family, and they're baptized The authorities end up apologizing to Paul because they shouldn't have put him in prison in the first place. They release him. He goes back and visits the brothers, which at this point seems to have been Lydia and her family, possibly this slave girl, the Philippian jailer and his family, and then he leaves Philippi. That's the start of the church in Philippi. Pretty wild way to get things going. That's the first day that he mentions of their partnership in the gospel. And then in, their sub, in, in, in Paul's subsequent ministry, the Philippians continued to support him. We read that they at least supported him in Corinth and in Thessalonica. 
We know that they participated in the collection for the church in Jerusalem. That's the reference that I read a second ago from 2 Corinthians 8, that they gave out of abundance, uh, out of, uh, even out of their extreme poverty they gave. And then here he finds himself in prison. They are supporting him again. So over and over now, this relationship with the Philippian church has borne fruit. So when Paul mentions partnership in the gospel, on one level, we should see that partnership uh, as these various expressions of support and financial aid that they have given him. That they have partnered physically and materially in conveniencing themselves to support Paul so that the gospel would go forth. But that's only one level. It's not the whole of this phrase. As one writer said, their financial partnership is only a particular expression of the larger concept of partnership in the gospel. In other words, partnership in the gospel is not limited to this financial aid. It's not limited to the specific gift they gave him. This is where we begin to see some of the broader implications of what Paul means by partnership in the gospel. Now, you might be familiar with the Greek word here that's translated partnership. This is koinonia. Makes a great tattoo, right? Most of the time in the New Testament, it's translated as fellowship. But here, because it has both these this larger and particular connotation, both spiritual and financial uh, uh, connotation, it's translated as partnership. Some, in some translations, it's even participation. But the idea is behind koinonia is partnership with one another based on a mutual bond. So when Paul mentions partnership in the gospel, what he's saying is the gospel is that mutual bond. The gospel is the fundamental element on which their partnership is grounded. And if the gospel is the fundamental element, as he says here, then the financial part of it is not the grounds. Paul's not got a good relationship with them just because they've been feeding him support. It's not just because he gets along with them well or their personalities mesh or whatever, and that's why they have this great relationship. No, the key is the gospel is the binding ingredient between Paul and the Philippians. One commentator, this is the guy I read earlier uh, at the introduction, Gordon Fee, in his commentary, he draws a triangle. And he says there's a three-way bond in Philippians between Christ, Paul, and the Philippians. So between Christ and Paul, Paul is bound by the gospel. Between Christ and the Philippians, the Philippians are bound by the gospel. Because they are each bound by the gospel to Christ, they are necessarily bound to one another by the gospel. It is the glue that binds them across years and across miles. Would have been easy for Paul just to go his own way, do his own thing. Would have been easy to just let the Philippians go their own way. But because they were each mutually committed to Christ by the gospel, they were mutually committed to each other. And this, this partnership then, this relationship, these are broader implications, does not describe only the relationship between Paul and the Philippians. This is what Christian fellowship is. And yes, it's appropriate to use the word fellowship 
when we're speaking of the broader spiritual connotations of koinonia. By the way, um, this is another reason why we practice church membership, because, because it shows this, this real practical uh, meat on the bones of biblical fellowship, of biblical committing to one another through a covenant because we are individually committed to Christ. And this is an important idea for us to recover, particularly in our day when fellowship is the word we use when Christians get together, but they don't really do any Christian-y things, right? So if we get together, but we don't pray or read the Bible or teach or sing songs, what do we call it? Fellowship, right? I, I grew up in a church that had a fellowship hall because that's the place where we ate. We didn't preach there. We didn't, you know, teach there. It's the place where we ate. We had to, we had to give it a spiritual name, so we called it the fellowship hall. But the problem is neither of these things have anything to do with the biblical idea of fellowship. Nothing at all. Let me read this from one writer. In a day when the term fellowship is loosely applied to any time believers gather together for any purpose, it is essential to regain the biblical understanding of fellowship. What distinguishes true biblical fellowship from simple shared interests and experience among non-Christians is the gospel-centered nature of biblical fellowship. You hear that? Gospel-centered nature and fellowship, the grounds of the fellowship. As such, he goes on, it is oriented around encouraging, exhorting, teaching, praying, and giving, and suffering with fellow believers in an effort to follow Christ. Fellowship is not the word to use when we hang out. Can I just... Give us permission. It's okay to just hang out. It's fine. We don't have to call it something special. You have my permission. If you need to give anybody a record, you have my permission. It's okay to just hang out. We don't need to call it fellowship because biblical fellowship is not an event. It's not an event we go to. Fellowship is a kind of relationship. It's a kind of relationship founded on mutual commitment to the gospel. And because it's founded on the gospel, it necessarily means those relationships breathe gospel air. It means that those relationships, as this writer just said, are oriented around encouraging, exhorting, teaching, praying, giving, and suffering. So if you don't believe me, flip one page. In my Bible, it's one page. Philippians chapter 4, verse 14. This is after the famous, I can do all things through Christ, which we'll get to much later. But in 4.14, he says, it was kind of you to share my trouble. Now, if you're in the ESV, you probably have a footnote there with share. Go down to the bottom, and what does it say? Or have fellowship in. You could read that word, it was kind of you to have fellowship in my trouble. So, because Paul was committed to the gospel, because the Philippians were committed to the gospel, they were willing to enter into his hard situation, even at great cost to themselves. That is Christian fellowship. It's got nothing to do with a room or hanging out. 
That's why Paul calls their relationship in chapter 1, verse 5, a koinonia, because it has something to do with participating in one another because they're bound by the gospel. It's a relationship that has nothing to do with finding the right people, making sure they're in the right life stage, making sure we have similar interests, making sure our personalities mesh and our kids get along well. Nothing to do with that. It's founded on commitment to the gospel. As you can imagine, this brings truckloads of implications to our relationships in the church. When it comes to gospel communities, you're not looking for the perfect GC You're not looking for the right folks. You're not looking for the right life stage. You're not looking for the right leader. You're not looking for the right personalities. You're there because you are each committed to the gospel and then therefore committed to one another. This elevates our our ability to, to have forbearance in patience, in love with one another when we disagree because your, your partnership in the first place was never founded upon the fact that you disagree on every small matter. It was founded on commitment to the gospel, which means, and this is so sweet when it happens, you can disagree sometimes even fiercely and then you can say, I love you and mean it. That's what happens when we commit to the gospel. When someone is hurting in the church for any, any kind of reason, whether that's sin, whether that's they have, have been hurt by another or by a circumstance, they have, been, they have felt hurt by God even, we can, because we have mutual commitment to the gospel, we can enter into that with another person, not because they are our best friends, not because we get along with them well or we have similar interests, but because they're bound to the gospel by Christ, you're bound to the gospel by Christ, you can lash your boat to theirs and say, I'm in this with you because of the gospel. In our marriages, how we relate to other churches, how we relate to our friends in Honduras, truckloads of implication are unloaded onto us when we consider that all of our relationships are built on partnership, fellowship, commitment to the gospel, and nothing else. Hopefully, we'll have time to deal with some of those this week in our gospel communities. But for Paul, this was the reason his relationship with the Philippians was so precious. The reason he had such joyful gratitude for them. Well, as we move into our last point, Paul's sure confidence, we need to notice these temporal markers that he gives He's enjoyed this partnership with the Philippians, he says, from the first day until now. And these markers bracket, from the first day until now, the full history of of the Philippians uh, being in the gospel, from the first day in Acts 16, all the way up until the time Paul is writing to them. But lest they think their commitment to the gospel describes only their past, Paul brings their future into view And he digresses into a note of assurance. Read verse 6 with me. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, let's just say this is a verse you probably know. It 
you may not have known, it was in Philippians, tucked away in this little aside, in this note of gratitude. But this one probably belongs on that, if there were such a thing, that popular bookshelf, right? We talked about this with Romans 8, 28 recently, John 3, 16, Philippians 4, 13. This one might belong on that bookshelf. And, and when you talk about, when you speak of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, this is one you'll go to. I did a quick Google search the other day. And uh, every article that came up on the first page referenced this verse when it came to the perseverance of the saints. And, and yeah, this verse can be rightly used as a, as a proof text there to say that Christian, the Lord does finish what he starts every time. But just like we saw with Romans 8.28 a couple of months ago, just like we would expect, in its context we see much more full meaning here. So, we can see this as a maxim, just a, tr- a true statement. But let's look at it in its context. We mentioned those time markers. So what Paul is trying to do is, is extend the brackets. He's trying to extend the scope of time that covers the Philippians' participation in the gospel. Yes, Philippians, you have been faithful up until now, the time of my writing, as evidenced by uh, your, your gifts of support. But you need to know that your future participation in the gospel is not just up in the air. He wants to assure them of their continuance to the end. And that's why he writes this sentence. He tells them that he who began a good work in you. Let's think about the good work for a minute. And let's think about it similar to how we did participation in the gospel. So with that word, we said there were both, there were both uh, specific implications that had to do with the gift they had given, and there were more broader implications. Let's do the same thing with good work. On one level, we can see good work as, if you, if you want to refer this to Ephesians 2.10, a good work that God had prepared for the Ephesians in advance to do uh, so that they could support Paul on one hand. But more broadly, we should also understand good work simply as salvation in Christ. And this makes sense because they're participating or believing in the gospel, which he mentions in verse 5, leads to salvation in Christ. So we should see good work equals salvation. But, you may say, if, if the good work is the fact that I am saved, why does it need to be completed? I thought, if you're saved, you're saved, which is true. If you're saved, you're saved. But the New Testament speaks of salvation in all three of our tenses, both past, present, and future. For example, Romans 8.24, for in this hope we were saved, past tense. 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Present tense. Listen to Jesus, Matthew 10. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Future tense. Or, if we want to use language we've heard recently, we were justified, we are being sanctified, and we will be glorified. So because the New Testament can talk about salvation, both past, present, and future, it's okay for us here to see good work as salvation that was begun and at the same time not complete. 
And when he speaks of salvation being completed, verse 6, at the day of Jesus Christ, we've seen this recently too in Romans, we're talking about being, being fully and finally conformed to the image of Christ. We, we saw in Romans 7 and, and 6 how we still wrestle with this indwelling sin. And, and what it means to be fully and finally conformed to the image of Christ is no longer wrestling with that. No longer being, being uh, succumbing to sin and to the effects of this fallen world. So the good work begun by God is salvation. Yes, fully inaugurated. Yet at the same time, not fully consummated. And with this, Paul has given the new time marker. He moved one of the brackets. It's not only up until now, but it's all the way until the day of Jesus Christ. And he puts God's stamp at both ends. The one who began the good work was God. The one who will finish the good work is God. And if we pay close attention, his stamp is also all over the in-between. See, Paul doesn't just say God will finish what he starts. He says he will bring it to completion. There's a difference. So we've thought in one sense, we've already thought finally. God will finally bring it to completion when we are fully transformed into the image of his son. But to see God working in the in-between, we also need to think progressively. This is what's harder to convey in the translation. And it's why some, some translations will say that he will carry it to completion until the day of Christ. Carry involves, it seems to involve more active involvement. And then the, the preposition there used is until, because that, that means between now and then. And, and, and that's a fine translation. So is what the ESV says, because the idea is both progressive and final. God is not just beckoning from afar until you get close enough for him to reach you. Then he'll pull you in the rest of the way. That he is the one carrying us along. So for the Philippians, he's saying, look, not only will he finish what he started, you know, a decade ago when I came to you first in Acts 16, but he is working now in you completion to the end. That means he's doing that now, even in us today. You may, you may feel like you are one inch further from where you began. And that was 20 years ago. I still feel pride. I still struggle to love to read the Bible. You, you might find yourself saying with Paul, what is wrong with me? Remember we saw that in Romans 7? The message here to you, Christian, is because God is working progressively, what he started in you 10, 20, 60 years ago has not left just for you to figure out on your own. He is working completion in you even now, and he will bring it about. He's working it through means of his word, through means of these gifts he's given to you in this room, through other partners in the gospel through his spirit. We see in Philippians 1.6 salvation, both past, present, and future. God began the good work by saving us. He is saving us by bringing us along, and he will save us by completing it at the day of Christ. 
This is the sure confidence from Paul that comes not because he thinks the Philippians are just such swell guys. It's not that he just thinks they have such integrity, but as one commentator says, his confidence is not in the Christianity of the Christians, but in the godness of God. That's why Paul writes with such confidence. He can say that because God is God. And and to borrow from the same things Paul wrote in Romans 8 and 9, which we have read recently, you may recognize these words, we have an unfailing hope and we are safe in God's hands because his word stands and his righteousness stands. Those were titles of sermons from Romans 8 and 9. Same guy that wrote those, those letters to Rome has written this in Philippi with the same message. You can have a sure confidence that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Of course, we know what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean sit back, relax, God will take care of it. We know that. But Paul gives both the Philippians and the 21st century Christian sure confidence that if God began a good work in you, Christian, he will bring it to completion. He will carry you along until you are fully and finally transformed into Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement you give us in it. The encouragement to to think on others, to commit to others because of the gospel, to pray for others. The encouragement to not grow weary, but to know that we will be completed, that the thing you began in us will be completed. I pray that you would give that understanding to where it it needs to be heard this morning, that, that may that reality come to bear on hearts where it is needed today. Thank you for this time, and we pray that you would watch over us as we go from here today. We thank you for the Lord's Supper we're about to take, that you gave your body and blood so that we might be able to be here and gather, so that we might be committed to you by the gospel in the first place. May that come to our minds this morning as we celebrate this gift you've given us. Amen.